0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this week with my longtime buddies, collaborators, and colleagues Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Audie Weiner is away doing Audie Weiner things. He will be back. Some combination of us always here talking sports analytics for the hour. We are recording on Tuesday afternoon, a little later in the day than we usually do. Dion, thanks for hanging in there. But the show will go up in the morning on m Wednesday morning, replayed a few times over the course of the week. We'll get the podcast up on Wednesday also. We are in the final, next to final week. I guess we're going to get two weeks before the Super Bowl, right? A few weeks of football left, but only three games left. We've just come through an interesting divisional round. Reactions, fellas? Where's your football head? Where's your football soul coming out of last weekend and going into a big conference championship weekend this weekend?
0: Well, the things that struck out to me were, first of all, uh, Baltimore got real serious in the second half of that game. And that's when we saw an elite team play. And, uh, you know, really, if you think about it, they didn't give up a touchdown. It's not really to think about it. It's a fact. They scored one on a punt
1: return. They didn't give up an offensive
0: touchdown. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They didn't give up an offensive touchdown against a Houston team where I think C.J. Stroud may have led the NFL in passing yards. Certainly, he was one of the top two or three in passing yards and touchdowns. To keep Houston from not scoring an offensive touchdown is impressive. So Baltimore seems to be, and also Baltimore didn't have trouble scoring as well. I mean, you say in the first, all right, whatever, they scored. It's a full 60-minute game. They scored 34 points. So... Baltimore, to me, looked to be the elite team of all the teams we saw, in the, that I saw this last weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, just quickly, if we want to continue on, um, I thought Green Bay was the better team than San Francisco. Yeah. I can construct so many scenarios where Green Bay wins that game, not getting stopped at the fourth and one, two pickoffs that were thrown right into a defensive players' hands that, I don't know, 60, 70, 90% of the time actually get caught and returned. Um, all kinds of plays, but I thought Green Bay was the better team than San Francisco. So to me, San Francisco's beatable. I don't know that the Lions are going to beat them, but to me, San Francisco's very beatable. Tampa Bay-Detroit, to me, the better team won. I thought Tampa Bay was an overperformer performer uh, the whole season. You know, they were projected like four wins. They won their crappy division. They beat a bad Eagles team. So let's not, let's not give them a bunch of uh, medals for doing any of that but they were competitive against Detroit and they didn't play horribly. And, you know, they have something in Baker Mayfield. To me, that's a classic team. You should sign Baker Mayfield and you should draft a quarterback too and see what happens over the next two to three years. And lastly, Casey and Buffalo. Look, you know, Kate, you and I have the same Buffalo friend who obviously is torn about is torn. must be torn up about another wide right, but it's not even that Um, to me. Buffalo also had that game. They had many opportunities to win that game. So to me, um, Baltimore looked elite. The other teams, I'm not that excited about any of those other teams. I hope Baltimore wins the Super Bowl, not because I'm a huge Jim Harbaugh fan or sorry, John Harbaugh, sorry, John Harbaugh fan or even a big uh, Baltimore fan. They're the best team. I hope the best team wins because to me, they look much better than the other teams. All
2: right. Yeah, I mean, I I think Baltimore stands out to me. I mean, I I don't know, I I you know the Chiefs have made you know the Chiefs continue to sort of I guess you know keep it going despite expectations. So could I talk myself into a, a scenario next week where the Chiefs beat the Ravens? I can, but it's you know almost every almost anything you could actually look at comparing the two suggests that the Ravens you know are are, are going to the Super Bowl. Um and I do I agree I kind of agree that they looked more impressive in their win than San Francisco did. Um but you know if it comes down to a Ravens 49ers matchup in the Super Bowl again I wouldn't give them more than like you know a 55 45 kind of at chance and in, in something at the most. like the that fact, right. I mean, so, as of a
1: couple of weeks ago the Niners would have been favored in that matchup so it's going to be if that's who it is it'll be close and Anybody could win that game. No matter how impressed we are with Baltimore, I mean, there's a—you never know what, what you're going to get. These teams have high variance. We talk about this a lot. Um, well, I just want to, you know, send condolences to the to the Buffalo community. I was on a long text thread with that group as the game unfolded, and it's continued into Tuesday the morning and the rending of clothes. It's a brutal. It's a brutal sports fan. There's so it's-
0: many things. I mean, look. Josh Allen makes one more play, and there, and I can point out plays he could have made. The kicker makes one more kick. The defense doesn't get called for, I guess it was pass interference or illegal contact when it wasn't illegal contact. So the defense makes one more play. In other words, it wasn't all one player. Josh Allen didn't lose the game, the kicker didn't lose the game, and the defense didn't lose the game. That's, but my that's, all three of those parts of the game, if they had each made one, that's what many, Shane, that's probably, we could look at every three-point game that in the NFL history and said the offense or defense or special teams had made one more play, the game could have gone Yeah, the other
2: all, all they had to do a couple of years ago was not, like, give up three points in 13 seconds or whatever that was, you know? I, I think it was, yeah, I mean, it is, it's unbelievable, that's, you know, kind of what can be so enthralling, but also, like, demoral, absolutely, like, yeah, devastating about kind of playoffs. Is, is it often does, even with, you know, you can kind of talk about game flow and execution across the game, but it will often come down to one or two kind of plays going one way. But also, other,
0: Shane, that's... When that's also, though, goes when people say, so Buffalo needs a rebuild. No, yeah, no, I I, that's two why. Two more I plays would... go their way, and, you know, they win that game, and then all of a sudden we're talking about, Josh Allen's gotten over the hump and Buffalo's yeah. got the future.
2: I mean, what Patrick Mahomes did, has done to Buffalo for the last few years is what Brady did to, you know, the Indianapolis Colts for several years, but then they broke through and won the Super Bowl in like 06. So, I mean, you know, the it, it can because it's based, we're mostly talking about random, you know, kind of the random outcomes of particular events. It can it can flip the other way.
1: All right, guys, a couple of fun games this weekend. Uh, we'll see this time next week. We'll know who the Super Bowl matchup is. We're going to talk more football in the second half of the show with Aaron Schatz, our guest. We're going to dive into these things in a little more detail. So let's take the moment and step around outside of football. I haven't done that in a little while, but lots of fun storylines. Guys, you can tell me what your favorite is. I think mine would be this amateur, Nick Dunlap, who won on PGA Tour first time in 30-plus years, first time since Phil Mickelson in 1991, that an amateur has won a PGA event, only the third amateur winner since 1957. And that's pretty good. This is a sophomore from the University of Alabama. You may not know that the University of Alabama has a great golf program. You might know that because Justin Thomas came out of that. Yeah, Alabama. that's what I
0: thought. I thought Justin Thomas was out of Alabama,
1: but it's just a it's a great story. He shot like 2900. Um, that used to be the Bob Hope Classic. It's a, it's one of these big fields, multiple, turn, multiple um, golf course tournaments. But good fun, big event on the in the golf world. Eric, you must have Australian Open updates for us. We're late into the tournament at this point, are we not?
0: We're very late. I mean, on the men's side and women's side, half of the semifinals have been determined, and we're still, you know, quarterfinal play is still going on today. Um, look, the great dichotomy again was looking at the men's draw versus the women's draw. I'm pretty sure in the men's draw, I may have this off a little bit. I know the number 1 seed. Let's talk about the quarterfinals. The number 1 seed was clearly still alive. That's Novak Djokovic. He's in the semis. The number 2 seed Carlos Alcaraz still alive. The number 3 seed Daniel Medvedev still alive. The number 4 seed Jacob Sinner still alive. The number 5 seed Andre Rublev still alive. And maybe the other people. I know Fritz lost. He was the number 12 seed. I think um all eight players were, and were since the past was alive, all tw- eight players that were are still alive were in the top 12 in the world with all the top five there. We mm. contrast that with the women's side, which I've talked about this for years in our show, is that in the top half of the draw, I don't think there's any seeded women left. And in the bottom half of the draw, we do have Sabalenka and Goff on a collision course in the semifinals, which will be a great matchup. But it's, again, um we will have, it's either unseeded or maybe it's a 19 seed or a 20 seed or something like that in the finals. And so that's, again, what seems fascinating to me is that the top heaviness of the men's draw, the more wide open nature of the women's draw. And it makes, I love women's tennis. In some sense, I can identify with it more. Um, to me, the wide open nature makes these matches fantastic.
1: It's funny you say that, Eric. I've never heard you say that before. Uh, My my advisor, my my and and longtime friend Richard Taylor, he had a theory about uh, women's golf that we should all watch more women's golf because we 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 can more readily replicate that swing than we can uh, men's golf. And there's no yeah. And the other thing I have to think about
0: the Australian Open was you know I started to wonder. You may remember the um, Jeff Cedar, our horse guy. And his theory about horses is who's got the biggest heart. And he doesn't mean which one tries the most. He literally means which horse has the biggest heart. Um, I'm starting to think that Novak Djokovic just must have a bigger heart.
1: Because, (laughs) no, I'm just saying. Physiologically. You literally mean physiologically. I mean
0: physiologically. To beat this man in a five-set match is ridiculously difficult because he doesn't seem i mean he gets tired but not the same way you know as jeff cedar said all horses slow down secretariat just slowed down less of course Djokovic is more tired in the fourth or fifth set than he is in the first or second set but he seems a lot less tired than other people and you know for him to do this at age 36 is just remarkable and the fact is Every time he's made the semifinals in the Australian Open, which is 10, he's won. 10 for 10 when he makes the semifinals. And by the way, he just beat uh, Taylor Fritz. He's probably going to have to play Sinner, who just beat him twice in a row, by the way, at the end of last season. And then he's probably going to have to play Alcaraz or Medvedev. So if you want to talk about no one's giving him the Australian Open... He's going to have to be two top four players in the world to win the Australian Open, and that's no easy task.
1: Okay, so what probability do you have on that? And maybe Matt can give us a a, a betting line for, for his winning the Australian Open, given what he has to go through. I mean, on the one hand, it feels like inevitable, but the course is set for him, it's rather not inevitable, right? What do you think, what would you give? What's the Eric Bradle line?
0: Given he's already in the semis, I would say his chances are probably... Slightly greater, no more than 50, no less than fifty percent, but no more than I would say sixty-two thirds, because. I think he's got a 7 a lower bound to me just cuz he is He has to be the favorite. He's probably got a 70% chance to win each of his last two matches which would put his overall probability at around 50%. Maybe you want to go up as high as 80% in those matches, but you can't go higher against Sinner who's beaten him twice or Alcaraz who was 2 and 2 against him last year. Even if you give 80 80, that puts him at 64%. So well, somewhere really- in that range, I would feel comfortable Fifty percent to 60, 65 percent. And he's minus one ten. So yeah. there we go. So Matt just put minus one ten. What's that? About fifty to sixty percent, somewhere in that
1: range. Well, yeah, with the VIG, it's more it's closer to the fifty side, I think. But um the it's it's just interesting to hear you work through those probabilities given it, you know the big heart and the story makes it sound more more uh inevitable than it than it actually is ultimately. Um Eric, you, I want I want to I want to brag. I actually read an article about women's tennis. There was a splashy articles in the last couple of weeks about this sixteen year old that did well in the tournament and is catching. People think that she may be.
0: Yeah, on, uh, I think it's Andreeva.
1: I don't know how you Mira Andreeva, Mira Andreeva, yeah, something
0: like that. Mira Andreeva, something like that.
1: Russia, then maybe France. Um, and did you get to see her play? Do you, I mean, is it is it just like I? You, I don't know how seriously to take these articles. Like it's just. It seems like every few years there's supposed to be somebody and it never really quite happens. It has felt like it hasn't happened since the Williams sisters in on the Yeah, field. no,
0: I I did I have seen her play. I've seen her play even prior to this tournament because she's had some very good results. Look, this is something that I'm sure we just talked about this in the NFL Shane, right? That just a couple of plays can change the game. This is the same thing that happens in tennis among the elite players, which is I'm like I, I even went back and was thinking about last year's Wimbledon. By the way, the only tournament that prevented Djokovic from winning the Grand Slam, which he lost a five-set match to Carlos Alcaraz. I forget what it is, twenty to eighteen in the. It was some close in the fifth set. Made basically two points determined that match, and so this is also what happens with women's tennis. Andreva is a very very good player. I believe she can have stretches of four or five games where she can play with anybody in the world. The question is, can you do it for three sets in women's tennis? That's the question. Just like in men's tennis, I can watch Taylor Fritz win a set against Djokovic. He did. He won the second set last night. Then the other three sets, he looked like he was never going to win a set. So that's the problem. Let's see you do it in women's tennis for three sets total, in men's tennis for five sets total. That's the problem. It's not that these number 15 in the world can't win a set. Number 15 in the world can't win three sets. That's the problem.
1: Well, on, on her in particular, she, she did win three matches down there, got knocked out in the fourth round over the weekend. And it's, I mean, we, we, we need age curves. I think you ask, you're in the, in the, in the shots interview, second half, you talk about age curves with coaches. I'd like to see, we are, we often interested in the, in the age curves on the tail end of player performance and athlete performance. What about on the front end? I mean, we, we all grew up with these 16-year-old female tennis stars. Chris
0: Everett, Tracy Austin, Martina Hingis. I mean, grew up. with I mean, these people, Navratilova, these people were all great champions. By the time they were 20, they had Grand Slam titles.
1: Right. So, we, so that's to say that we shouldn't tampon expectations too quickly just because she's only 16, at least historically, that's the case. These days, I don't know if it still holds up. The competition may have gotten tougher.
0: I'll say the following. I think there are very few extraordinarily accomplished 18-year-olds or below that don't end up very accomplished players. I think by that time, there's probably enough evidence. I didn't say they're going to be multiple-time Grand Slam champions. I didn't say they're going to have the career of a Chris Everett or a Martina Hingis or a Tracy Austin. But it would be shocking if Andrieva in the next two to three years was not a top 10 player. That would be surprising given her trajectory so far.
1: All right. Good fun, good fun. Um Eric, uh you, you you've got one of your teams and one of your one of your guys You're a little short, I would say, put up a performance last night. So Joel Embiid, 76er, goes for 70 out of the blue, pops for 70, and he's having what most people think is an MVP year. Um are you are you refining your theory at all? Your big man theory? No. no. Okay, so So let's be
0: clear. I've never shorted Joel Embiid. I've just said the best player on your team is a center. You're going to have trouble at the end of games when what the other team will do, I'll say this for the thousandth time, the other team's going to press you coming up the court. So now you cross the three point, cross the half court line, there's 16 or 17 seconds on the clock. They're not just going to let you bring the ball up. Then you got to work the ball around because they probably have a good center too who's going to at least not make it. So you can't directly pass the ball into Embiid. So now you have to rotate the ball to Embiid. So now Embiid catches the ball with seven to eight seconds left on the clock. So now Embiid's one dimensional. He he can make one move, not more than that, shoot, or he's got to pass the ball, which is exactly what you want. So no, I stay with my theory. Embiid is, it- is an amazing player, shooter, and defensive player. But I'm shorting the Sixers... Because he's the best player on the team and he's the best player by far.
1: Is there anything they could do in the regular season that would have you, uh, would, would shift your thinking at all? Or is it like, you, you don't think it can show up one way or the other until the playoffs? It's just such a categorically different game once we hit the playoffs.
0: Well, here's the one thing. So um, I'd like to see their record at the end of the season against, here are the only teams I actually care about. I want to see their record against the Bucks, the Celtics, I'll throw in the Heat. Why not? They did go to the finals last year. The Denver Nuggets, and maybe this year, I don't know, the Timberwolves seem to be having a pretty good season. Let's see their record against those five teams, number one. And number two, this is the other problem. Joel Embiid is a big man in a good way, but he's a big man. Man weighs almost 300 pounds. How well is he going to do in the Eastern Conference finals in a seven game series? where he may have to play 35 to 40 minutes a game to get the Sixers through. And so another reason I don't like that my big man is my best player is higher injury prone, higher fatigue, et cetera.
1: Right. And I mean, he may not even play enough games to qualify for this MVP. People think that he's uh, on track for, but he, they're, they're, they're load managing him enough that that might not happen. Shane, before we get away here, let's hear a little bit about the NHL. We're, we're having to warm up for our non-football sports, which is football is about to go away. We'll do a deep dive on the NHL in a few weeks after the Super Bowl. But can you give us a little taste of what's going on over there? Because they're almost to the halfway mark, are they not?
2: Well, over the halfway mark now. So we've really kind of, you know, now's the time when we can start turning our attention. And I think, you know, we, we've gotten a much better sense of what the, where teams what trajectory teams are on. The Oilers, for example, right now are on a 13-game winning streak, so they're really moving up the standings. And kind of a, again, we'll go in more detail like once football is 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 beyond us. But uh, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting us- watching kind of the East right now because there's a lot of playoff playoff kind of contention to be sorted out.
1: Hold on, but don't go too past... Too fast past the Oilers. Remind us why we should be paying attention to the Oilers. Why it's fun? to...
2: I don't think. Well, they're on not- a thirteen-game winning streak. I don't think we should because you know I'm a Calgary Flames fan, and the oil it hurts. Me. Rub it of course, a- you know they are. I mean, they they remain a you know they're they're a very high-scoring team. You know, they're they're kind of a fun style of hockey to watch if you like uh, scoring and being scored upon. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they're they're an exciting team. I just I, I you know I reset, doesn't I negate- resent their success.
1: Doesn't McDavid play for them? Don't they have one of the best players in the NHL? I'm yeah, making-
2: no. They they as a franchise, they've locked into two of the top five <laughs> players in hockey history. And I mean, we could dwell on that if we wanted to, but you know, we could also look at you know a bunch of other upstart teams out there. So, Shane, just have- just
0: a quick question: How rare is a thirteen-game winning streak in hockey? Like, I know it's the wrong math because a thirteen-game winning streak implies it's not a five hundred team, but a half to the thirteenth is, of course, like one in eight thousand. So you know.
2: Do, is that indicative of it's like not historical, like I, I don't know really kind of in the historical tales or anything like that. I mean, you know, I, I, I think the NBA, you know, I think play like, think about a slightly more shrunk version of the NBA. I mean, an NBA teams can kind of like, if, uh, this would probably be the equivalent of something like a 15 or 16 game winning streak in NBA and would that be, I mean, that would be con- notable. Well, Matt, Matt not- just
0: put in the rundown in the chat that there's only been 12 in history.
2: Really? In hockey. With, with that, matter of like, fact, is, this is this one has to count.
0: Okay, yeah. I'm saying we should do a whole show on this, like what you just did, which is 13 in a row in hockey is worth, I'll make it up, eight in a row in the NFL, yeah. which is worth 20 in a row in baseball, which is worth, you know, et cetera. Um, that's really, I I, I love that thinking, which is trying to equate sports in terms of the frequency of winning, winning streaks of certain length.
2: Yeah. And we do kind of know, I mean, you know, the record in baseball is like 20 or something like that. Right. So, um, I mean, yeah, I, uh, it's, uh, I I would, I would say it's certainly it's, it's indicative of, of, of a team being on a roll, but honestly, it's not far off what the, what the, what the Bruins did last year kind of. You know, with their kind of rate of winning across the entire season is, is obviously. And just work.
0: quickly, That's Shane, it. if Edmonton makes the playoffs with some massive winning streak, you're still not putting much more probability than your oh, no. playoffs. Oh, no. Playoffs,
2: the playoffs. Yeah. Ho- hockey playoffs. Believe uh, in the coin flip model, bet on the coin flip model. As as exciting as it is to bet on a coin
1: flip model, <laughs> so the, just to give a quick rundown, the the West really does look like the the playoffs are already pretty. Um, not established, but getting there with seven. 17- yeah, there's
2: there uh, uh, any one of those. Speaking of runs, any one of those teams like Calgary. Ideally, <laughs> or, 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 or see, you know, Seattle could certainly go on a run that would push them up and another team can come down. So, you know, the exact, I, I think the West could be sorted out. Maybe one or two teams change places, but the East is far more wide open in that there's, you know, six, seven, there's only a, a few, like a handful of teams that basically lock themselves into a playoff spot. And there's five, six, seven teams that are kind of contending for the remaining spots.
1: So, just using our friend Micah McCurdy's numbers it those teams in the east that are pretty well locked in boston and florida that was that first round matchup last year um both coming in north of 95 and then carolina and the rangers new york rangers coming in above 90 as well so we'll get more into that in coming weeks but thanks for that quick rundown and again go look go look at mccurdy mccurdy's always got great stuff on twitter About the NHL. All right, team. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball this week. We have Aaron Schatz and a fun interview coming up. Deep dive on the NFL in the second half. Come back and join us after the break.
0: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of this week's show in this half hour we still have Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow along here with me. we also have a guest. This is our usual guest segment. And we've got one of our long time, one of our longest time friends of the show, Aaron Schatz, is joining us. You know, Aaron, if you pay any attention to football, he is presently the chief analytics officer of FTN Fantasy. He can be followed on Twitter at ashotsNFL NFL. At A Shots NFL. Great follow on Twitter and his influence is all over the league and football-watching community. Aaron, thanks for making time for us. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. Um, Aaron, coming out of a a fun divisional round, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings about the state of the NFL? Four teams left. There was some interesting games over the weekend. There were some less interesting games over the weekend, but um, it's a fun Final Four. Where are you on where we are?
3: I mean, the first thing is I just – I feel really bad for Buffalo fans. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've had it ripped away from them with close losses over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it's not like the Kansas City fans haven't had some success already, right? (laughs) Like what more does Kansas City need? They don't need any more success, right? Give Buffalo or Detroit a chance, for crying out loud. So, um, I mean, that was my first thought about the weekend. The the big thing for me this year is that my numbers – have Baltimore and San Francisco as historically great teams. Now, I realize that's a little different from other advanced metrics. Other advanced metrics do not necessarily have them as high as I do and do not necessarily have the Ravens ahead of the 49ers the way I do. But if you look at DVOA going back to 1981, the Ravens come out as the fifth best regular season team and the 49ers as the eighth
1: best regular season
3: team. Pretty remarkable.
1: Yeah. I probably safe to say we haven't had many seasons with two in the top twenty, much less two in the top eight. That's Yeah. Nineteen
3: ninety-five is the only other season like this when Dallas and San Francisco were both really, really, really good.
1: Well, that's so much fun. That was twenty twenty-eight years ago. I, I will say this, Aaron, Massey Peabody directionally with you. We've got those two at the top, we've got Ravens at the top, and we've got a big gap with the next yeah. two. I haven't looked yes. at how it compares over our history, but um, They're both up into double digits, which doesn't always happen, but the gap is what's notable. I don't remember a year where we had two teams, two teams. We, there were years where the Pats had that kind of gap, but two with that kind of gap is interesting. Shame it's, really,
3: it's huge wins. They have huge wins over good opponents, not exactly. bad opponents, good ones.
1: Exactly. There's a super interesting article in The Athletic, I think it was, today, making exactly that point that you, you do something like, okay, what's the re- team's records against – opponents that are multiple games over 500, you know, something like that. It's like really, really quality opponents and then how they played against them. So they have a good record, but then the point differential, it's like they lap the field in the point differential in those games. Shane, yeah, was that, trying-
2: that was actually just going to be my point is that they, I think they're averaging something like 26 points per game against opponents that, you know, are above like three, three games or more above 500. And that is certainly historical.
1: You mean 26-point differential? Point differential, yes. Absolutely.
0: Ridiculous. Eric. Yes, Aaron, I was going to ask you. So I watched a lot, if not all, of the Packers 49ers game. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't tell me what you just said based eighth best ever on DVOA I would have said the Packers were the better team. The Packers looked like they left a lot of points on the field. I thought they outplayed the 49ers in that game. So how do you tend to think about that? First of all, you know, teams have bad games. You might argue that's one of the worst games the 49ers played and they still won the game. That's what good teams do. You could argue that. Um, How do you think about that game? Or does it say more that the Packers are kind of in the right direction?
3: Well, it's a, a little bit that the Packers are in the right direction, and a little bit it's just random variation, right? Like even the best teams in history had off days. There was a game where the Patriots uh, needed a uh, the two thousand and seven Patriots needed some sort of a like um, uh, overturn play against Bart Jones. Uh, uh, in the Bart, uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the linebacker. Bart, Bart Scott. Bart Scott, yeah. They needed an over overturned play in order to win that game by like three points late in the two thousand seven season. Like they beat A.J. Feely by like three points late in the two thousand
2: seven. Oh, there was a lot of I mean, we think of that team as being dominant. There was a lot of games that came right, right. down. To Even the, the most that
3: dominant teams of all time have their their off days. And I think that what happened is the 49ers had one of their off days. Um, because certainly the Packers' defense has not played that well most of the season. That's what was shocking about that game, was that the Packers' defense played so well.
1: Hmm. What, and then uh, Devo Samuel being out is a factor as well, right? I mean, I, I'm not big on putting too many points on individual players other than quarterbacks, but it has to bring their offense down a little bit.
3: Yeah, I think that it brings their offense down a little bit. And the rain, um, Purdy... I mean, it's a small sample size, but he seems to struggle in rain more than other quarterbacks. He has a hard time gripping the ball. Mm.
1: Yeah, that scene of him wiping his hand in the middle of the play. I I mean, I've watched football for 50 plus years. I've never seen a quarterback do that. Holding the ball, looking for receivers and wiping his hand on on his pants can't be a good sign. Yeah, Um, how are you feeling about the 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 conference championships? It sounds. I mean, you're. It's always. I, I love the perspective you're taking, Aaron. It's like, okay, don't overreact to one game. We think the Niners are a very strong team. Don't go shorting them too quickly against the Lions. It's easy to jump on that Lions bandwagon, right? It's a fun game to to pull for. Um, is what when you look at your numbers, what do you see in the Lions beyond just the great story? Like, what chance do you think they have, and why?
3: Uh they were seventh in the regular season. So their offense is just very, very good, both passing and running the ball. That's the, I mean, to me, that's the thing for Detroit is they have a really good, well-balanced offense. They have a great offensive coordinator in Ben Johnson. They had actually the number one run defense by our numbers, which mm-hmm. is kind of shocking. Like, I don't think anybody would expect that. The problem is... Pass is it because their
0: pass defense stinks and everyone just throws the ball on them all the No, I always no, wonder well, because that. I because
3: I'm doing efficiency by play. I'm not oh, doing okay. Items, but um, their pass defense really declined over the second half of the year, and that's their main problem. They're really... The pass rush is mostly one guy in Aiden Hutchinson. If they can get him blocked, then Purdy should have time to throw. They're not so good at covering things downfield. The cornerbacks are not great. That's the problem... For Detroit. It's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that Detroit pulls off the upset, but it would be a it would be a, a big upset. Not like a historically big upset, but it would be a big upset. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Let's look at the other side, which is super intriguing. A lot of fun. The Chiefs went out and did something hard. They, you know, no one really gave up on them, but they weren't very impressive this year. Then they went into Buffalo and knocked off the, a very good Bills team. Now They've got to go into Baltimore and try to knock off a very good Ravens thing. If they do both of those things, they have more power to them. But how do you, when you look at the numbers, how do you make the AFC championship game?
3: I mean, I feel that this one is much farther apart than the market believes because I'm not going to give Patrick Mahomes any magic beans. Right? <laughs> There's this question of whether there exists playoff Mahomes uh-huh. in the same way that people believe there exists playoff LeBron in the NBA, that Mahomes doesn't really try his hardest until he gets to the playoffs, and then he try, and so then he becomes magic. Okay. The thing about that is their offense was very average against Miami. Obviously, part of that was the cold. But the the whole uh, narrative of uh, the, the Kansas City offense is back, baby, is one game. And it's primarily because Marquez valdez Scantling didn't drop any passes. Mm -hmm. Like It's not that Mahomes was good all year if you just watched him. It's not like Mahomes was bad this year. It's just his receivers were bad. And so against Buffalo, his receivers were not bad. Well, I don't know if that will continue against a Baltimore team that, by the way, Kansas City used a lot of 12 and 13 personnel taking advantage of the fact that Buffalo's linebackers were all injured. Right. Baltimore's linebackers are like the best players on the defense. <laughs> so it's a little bit different.
1: Yeah, that's the it's I mean, people saw the the you know the list of players that were out. And if you especially if you listen to the Bills game the week before, they were just dragging them off left and right. So you knew at some level that they were hurting, but that that kind of pales, you kind of forget that as KC moves down the field time after time after time. But you really have to consider that context. That offense looked better than it would against a really strong D because the Bills just were not themselves. That's, that's absolutely.
3: And the Ravens were the number one defense in the league this year by my numbers. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Shane.
2: I want to kind of ask about your perspective on, I guess, the other side of the ball with, uh, you know, the chiefs I think gave up 182 rushing yards to the Bills this last uh, weekend. And now they're going against the Ravens, which can run. You know, obviously, multiple players on that team can really run the ball. Do you kind of think? Do you see that as big of a as big a mismatch on paper as I see it? Or, or is there a different way to look at it? Yeah,
3: we had the Ravens as the number one running team, and we had the Chiefs as the number twenty-seven run defense. <laughs> and that does not count scrambles. That's only called runs. Then yeah. you add in Lamar Jackson scrambling which they had problems with Josh Allen doing that. Mm-hmm. And um, we have a thing where FTN does some charting and we have success rates by different um, different uh, run concepts. And Baltimore was super successful running power and Kansas City's defense was terrible against that concept.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, so we should know baltimore strategy going in buffalo clearly had that strategy i mean buffalo they just ran the ball and then they really kept a governor on on josh allen and it worked you know until it didn't KC adjusted some after the half but presumably baltimore will will mirror that in some way
3: yeah i mean kansas city so i think the idea was that willie gay was going to be the spy on allen and then gay got hurt So at least this week, they'll be able to prepare for the idea that Gay is probably not going to be able to play and someone else is going to have to be the spy on Lamar Jackson. But whoever else is going to have to be the spy on Lamar Jackson is not going to be as good at it as Gay would be. So that's a problem.
1: Aaron, you're talking me into a more comfortable Sunday afternoon than I was expecting. This is very, very pleasing. Eric.
0: Yeah, I would also, I would be, let me me just say, if Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, Win in Buffalo, win at Baltimore, and then let's say beat the Niners in the Super Bowl. You would agree, Aaron, that would be one of the, I mean, I don't want to say magic beads for Mahomes, but given your assessment of this Baltimore oh, that Rangers, would be
3: like the greatest playoff run of all time, yeah.
0: So that's <laughs> that's interesting. It's an interesting analogy and impressive. Um, I actually think the game will be close, but I, I just can't imagine, this way. If you look at the regular season, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. To me, Baltimore seemed much better than Kansas City. I'm trying to construct a scenario where, can. let's say both teams, let's suppose I tell you right now both teams play their best. Clearly, in your view, Baltimore wins the game. Let's say Baltimore doesn't turn the ball over. Baltimore probably wins the game. So I'm just trying to construct scenarios. Turnovers happen, but... I, I just don't see... I, I'm trying to construct scenarios where Kansas City wins the game.
1: Magic the beans, The scenario
0: baby.
3: is, magic, I mean, magic random, beans. random variation, random variation, and magic beans.
2: <laughs> and key injuries and in inopportune times, et cetera. Like what gets, happened to San Francisco last right, year. What if Kyle Hamilton
3: gets hurt? And uh, what if Roquan Smith gets hurt? And all of a sudden, the Ravens don't have the great linebackers to go up against the 12 personnel or to co- have Kyle Hamilton to cover Travis Kelsey or, I mean, there's always that possibility. And, you know, and the chiefs were a good team this year. They, they were a little underrated during the regular season, partly because their defense was really good, but their offense was not as bad as people thought it was. People kind of thought their offense was worse than it was because they expected so much more from them, but their offense was a, a top 10 offense, just not a super offense. Right. So it's not ridiculous that the Chiefs could just win this game, but a lot of the narrative of the Chiefs win depends on the idea that Patrick Mahomes just has magic beans and can overcome all of the problems on his offense and everything good about
1: the Baltimore Ravens. Right. All right. But we've got a couple of non-playing field questions, but before we do that, one, one last playing field question. T- talk to us some about, you opened your comments about, about the weekend, about the Bills. And um, you're a longtime football watcher. You have the you don't get too caught up in any one year, any one team. How should we think from a big picture about the Bills and their future and what prospects that great city and the great people there have of getting a Super Bowl on this particular run? You know, they had that Jim Kelly stretch and they had four goes at it. This you But Josh Allen, it's like okay, now. So what do you what do you make of it? What do you think?
3: They're, they are in a major salary cap problems for next year. Uh, Allen's uh, cap number is gigantic, like 47 million or something. Uh, Diggs' cap number goes way up next year. Uh, Von Miller's cap number is huge, and he doesn't seem to have anything left. And they're like already over the cap for next year. Like they are in a bad cap place with a lot of free agents. Their defense is going to be decimated. The depth of their defense is going to be decimated. Not necessarily the best players on the defense, but the depth. Um, I think this is the end of this run for Buffalo. I think Mm -hmm. they need a year or two to retrench and build with some younger players. And then there's going to be a second half of Josh Allen's career run. He's too good a quarterback not to have another run. But it's going to take a couple of years to to reset the way New Orleans did, Mm -hmm. right? New Orleans had, had two runs. New Orleans had the early part of Breeze's career, and then for a couple of years, they were like seven and nine, and then they had the later part of Breeze's career, and I think Buffalo is going to be in the same boat.
1: So, Aaron, it's interesting you gave that example because I was going to ask you a question about roster building and to what extent you push your chips in for a particular year or two, a a moment, versus really doing the prudent long-term planning. Is it safe to say that the Bills had pushed some chips in on this particular moment, And then do you think they're they're apt to do it again? Is that the wise play? When you think about that late stage Saints team, man, they were some chip pushing franchise, right? They can
3: try, but man, it's going to be hard. I mean, you know, restructure Allen and maybe try to trade Diggs in like a Tyreek Hill type trade. But I think everybody agrees he's kind of lost a step a little bit. And like I said, Von Miller's cap number is over 20 million and he doesn't seem to have much left. So I don't know what you can do with him. Um, it, it, it's, it's a problem. I mean, they, there's no question they could be a team, um, historically, there are a lot of teams where their best regular season and the year they win a championship do not line up.
1: Yeah, exactly. This And it's right? one of the reasons that you, you should be skeptical, I think, of the push all the chips in because you think you know the year and you don't always know the year. You right. Need...
3: It's possible that they lose all these defensive players, but they just have a very injury-free year next year. So it doesn't matter that their defensive depth is much less. Well. And they go out there and they draft a really they have a really good draft and they get a couple of good rookies and they shock us all by winning the AFC East again and then going on a run in the play. Well, the other thing, Aaron,
0: is that their deficiencies can also be masked by a, you know, semi horrific division. I mean, the Patriots are no good right now. They'll maybe turn around. The Jets aren't particularly good. And the Dolphins are okay. but they're not a great team so they're i mean they could make the playoffs regardless winning division or wild card and not be that great a team and then as you said random chance happens and who knows
3: right it's possible i'm not writing off the bills for next year but man oh, their salary cap looks bad mm-hmm. for next year
1: okay In, any comments on Josh Allen the quarterback where where yeah, is he i think the, Josh
3: the Allen area? had an amazing season I voted for Josh Allen first team all pro and I wrote a whole article about why I did that. Based on my stats he was the second best quarterback in the league after Brock Purdy and I think there are extenuating circumstances with Brock Purdy. <laughs> given that <laughs> okay. last year the most valuable quarterback in the league the most efficient efficient by pl- per play was Jimmy Garoppolo.
1: Yeah. So I yeah, think yeah.
3: there's something going on in San Francisco and I think everybody would agree. So I right. think Josh Allen had a fantastic year despite the turnovers, like even incorporating the turnovers into your analysis. And I think he carries that team. And as far as the idea that he'll never get past Patrick Mahomes, I think you could have said that in 1985 about Phil Sims. But eventually there was a year where Montana just didn't do it. hmm and eventually, there's going to be a. I mean, there already has been, right? There was a year where Joe Burrow went to the Super Bowl.
0: People said about Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady. Also, Peyton Manning lost. I think it was the first three or four playoff appearances against Brady, and they like, finally beat them. And did. But also, win. there were a
3: couple of years where Roethlisberger snuck in there over both Manning and Brady, right? So, like, yep. even the greatest quarterbacks do not make the Super Bowl every year. Allen will get his shot again. I just don't know if it's going to be with the current Bills offense as constructed.
1: One of the, I hate that, I mean, I asked the question and it's a fun conversation, but I do hate how much we make it about the quarterback. I remember those Manning-Brady conversations. It was just, it was, it was, people were obsessed with their head-to-head. It's like, this is absurd, guys. I mean, it's, it's a lot of guys on the field.
3: because Brian Burke from ESPN had a good point about this, which is the quarterback has so much control over the offense that it's almost like football is both a team sport and an individual sport combined.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: But yes, there are times when like Mark Sanchez is your quarterback and Darrell Revis is your corner and it's your defense that's carrying your team, not your quarterback.
1: Yes. Yeah, right, right. OK, speaking of Revis and your neck of the woods, we're interested to hear your longtime Bill Belichick watcher. Um, you've seen what's happened in recent years and now he's seemingly interviewing for a job with Atlanta. What, what do you think's left in the tank for Belichick? What's your analysis of him as a coach these days?
3: Clearly, he still is able to motivate his team and get them to play hard because they played hard this year. And I think he still has a good mind for defensive scheming because their defense played very well this year despite losing their two most talented players to injuries early on. The problem is that if you make Bill Belichick your head coach, you are asking for a very retrograde viewpoint on both offense and analytics, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? You are asking for the Ernie Zampezi offense, not a Shanahan-oriented offense, Mm -hmm. that no other team in the league really runs that scheme anymore. And you know you're going to be punting on fourth down all the time (laughs) and that he is not in the forefront of the league when it comes to anything analytical, even though he was 15 years ago, but time passes you by.
1: He he likes to be... uh... He likes to be oppositional, so when nobody else was into it, he was ready for it. Uh, one question though on him that you're, you're not addressing, and I feel like is a, an issue, is the personnel side. Would he? You don't want him making personnel decisions, right? And would he not? You know, would he ever give that up?
3: He's been better when working with the GM, and I think the idea is that if he goes to Atlanta, he will work with Rich McKay as the GM.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: And if he and if he's willing to kind of acquiesce control over GM. One way it could work out on the offensive side is if he's willing to also take on a a, a more kind of, you know, current offensive coordinator and kind of acquiesce. The rumors do not
3: point to that. The rumors are that Josh McDaniels is the offensive coordinator wherever Belichick goes.
1: Mm, Okay. All right. Well, um, it would be interesting. I I guess. I mean, are you are you ready for you're not ready for a league without Belichick, right? It's kind of interesting. It's fun. It's it's ever since I
3: started doing this. We had Brady and Belichick. I started doing this because of Brady and Belichick. So a league without Brady and Belichick is very weird. There's never
1: been such a thing in my career. (laughs) And what sense did you start because of them?
3: Uh, Because uh, I wanted to prove some things about the 2002 Patriots and why they missed the playoffs is how I first started doing football analytics in 2002. What were you trying to prove? What was your hypothesis? Uh, That it didn't matter that they couldn't establish the run. Okay. I was trying to prove a local reporter wrong who said the problem is the Patriots can't establish the run and that's why they missed the playoffs. And I said that
1: that doesn't make sense. The does the isn't there a website that's established the run or a show? Called yes, establish- there is a fantasy website now called EstablishedTheRun Yeah, it's mocking, right? It's a self mocking, it's a sarcastic title. But they, I wonder if they know the your history with that, Eric. Are we trying to jump in here.
0: Yeah, I was just asking, Aaron. Has anyone ever looked at whether there's age curves for coaches? And so I was actually just looking here. Um, turns out we were just talking about the Bills, and he's still going strong. Marv Levy has the is the oldest twice for the Super Bowl. Um, After that comes Belichick. After that, uh, actually, Bruce Arians is in that list as well. But there's never been a Super Bowl coach. I'm not saying there's a hard cutoff. There's never been a Super Bowl coach beyond the age of 70. And if you imagine Belichick going to a team that might not be ready to go to the Super Bowl in the next year. Do you have any thoughts about like can he be the coach of a team that it might take a three-year to five-year time horizon to get them to the place? Well,
3: that's what he was going to be here, right? I mean, if he stayed in New England. No, I know. Happened. So I'm saying,
0: do you have any concerns? of If you were a GM or a president of a team hiring him, would you have the worry that, you know, there isn't a five-year time horizon, three- to five-year time horizon?
3: Yes. I think if you hire Belichick, you do not know how long. It's like Aaron Rodgers at this point. You don't know how long you're getting him for. Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. All right. One, one last question, personal question for you. The Bears in a super interesting position with a quarterback with, you know, kind of on the fence and potential and controversial, or at least disagreed upon, and holding rights to the number one pick. What, what's your analysis? How do you even think about that? And do you have a position on what they should do?
3: Here's the advantage of analytics. Analytics see every play. Our memories only see highlights. And Justin Fields has amazing highlights. Every play, the guy is a bad passer. <laughs> he has been below what we consider replacement level as a passer for three straight years. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and you look at the quarterbacks who started their careers with three straight years below replacement level, very the only ones who ever could become something were Jeff George and Alex Smith. Now that's an interesting comp for Justin Fields. If, what if Jeff George could run and was not a jerk? <laughs> right? Like I'm trying to use the nicest words I can, Uh-huh. Uh, but that's an interesting comp for Justin Fields. But do you want to gamble your entire franchise that that's what he's going to turn into? It's just, it's been three years and he has not proven that he can be a passer and his salary is going to go up in two years when you have to do the fifth year option and then a new contract. Mm-hmm. So there's, I mean, it's no question to me, the Bears <laughs> have to trade Fields and use the number one pick on a quarterback.
0: Why wouldn't you, Aaron? Let me ask you just about the last part of that. You don't think there's a scenario just because it would just wouldn't work, that they keep fields and draft a quarterback. Then they have a competition and see who's the best quarterback. You know, you got you got maybe there's some more upside to Justin Fields. I don't happen to believe that either. But couldn't you keep fields and draft a quarterback? You
3: could, but I would rather have the stuff you get for fields. You think you'd get much for him? I think you would get some stuff for him. Yeah. You would get a couple of picks. And let's say you have that competition and Fields does suddenly become a star, and then I guess you have to trade your former number one pick, you're still on the hook for a big contract for Fields in two years, right? Whereas if the number one pick is your quarterback, then you get that cheap quarterback for four years, right? So I I understand the idea of keeping both of them, and I'm not worried about their mental state. I'm not worried about the – you know. The, the Cowboys took Steve Walsh in the first round of the supplemental draft, and they took um, Troy Aikman in the first round of the regular draft, and they let them compete against each other. And Troy Aikman's career was fine. He made the <laughs> Hall of Fame, so he was not like disturbed by this. So I'm not worried that Caleb Williams would be like, you're going to make me compete with Justin Fields? You must not believe in me. Now I will go out and suck. Like, I don't think that's what's going to happen, but I just, I feel like they could get more for Fields than he would be worth as uh, essentially the backup.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Eric, I like your creative thinking, man. We team, Teams uh, need to have, it's hard with roster spots, scarce roster spots, but as valuable as QBs are, they need to find ways to keep more QBs on the roster, trying them out, growing them, whatever. You know, there for a while, the Pats had a whole side business in growing young quarterbacks and taking them away.
3: Packers, historically, Aaron Brooks and Mark Brunell and Matt Hasselbeck, they were all Packers backups.
1: Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, Aaron, thanks, man. Lots of good stuff. Appreciate you making time for us this time of year. Go out and enjoy those conference championships. Thank you very much.
3: ftnfantasy.com slash DVOA. That's where you find all my stuff.
1: That's great. That's Aaron Schatz. He's over at FTN these days, longtime contributor across the football community, and a great follow on Twitter. That has been another Wharton Moneyball, another 60 minutes of sports analytics. We've had three quarters of the crew in here, everybody but Audie Weiner. Audi had things to do in the Big Apple, but we're all here, some combination of us anyway, almost every week of the year. Appreciate you guys being here. Big thanks to Matty Dats for the help that he always gives us to Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man, and to you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.